I wanted to welcome onto the show Joseph Newberger, who is a criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners and host of the Not On Record podcast, friend of the show, because a couple of stories caught my eye and I just thought we should probably wrap our heads around them. Joe, good to have you back. Thanks, Kelly. Happy to be here. So first of all, let's talk about the Toronto van attack killer, Alec Manassian. He is not due back into court until April. He will be sentenced uh, on 10 counts of first degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder. Um, but that sentencing is postponed. Um, and that is pending a Supreme Court of Canada ruling. What's going on? What's the holdup? So back in the days of the conservative government, there was an amendment to the criminal code allowing if there was multiple um, murders uh, of first degree murders that you could then uh, essentially have uh, consecutive life sentences, which would then uh, heighten the period of parole ineligibility. So technically, um, he could be sentenced to uh, 10 uh, with 10 deaths. 10 life sentences, which, you know, in U.S. terms would be 250 years and no chance of parole. And we've seen this in other cases where um, people have received uh, consecutive sentences and received 75 years for three murder cases. So there is a constitutional challenge, which is going to the Supreme Court of Canada, to say that this type of sentencing is unconstitutional. Um, they'll use the basis that it's, uh, you know, cruel and unusual punishment and uh, some other uh, arguments under the uh, charter, uh, but it, it has legitimacy, the the challenge, even though the public may think that um, consecutive sentences make good sense in a case like Manassian or others. Sure. I mean, I think a lot of people look at, at the sentence and say, oh, that's what a life is worth in the eyes of the law. And so um, if he took uh, several lives, then they should be all worth that time, and you should not entertain letting somebody out before they serve the sentence for each life. Am I am I off base on that? No, you're absolutely right. But it's a question of optics, and and that's what I, you know. It's important for the uh, listeners to understand. So one of the dangers of having uh, multiple consecutive sentences is if you start to have U.S. style sentencing, it could lead in certain circumstances to. Uh, plea bargains uh, in murder cases where, in fact, you know, you may have an individual who is uh, maybe innocent and they're terrified of a 100-year sentence, and so there's a plea bargain. That probably is pretty rare here in Canada because we have a much more balanced system, but you do see that in the United States where they have these crushing sentences across the board for many types of offenses, not just murder. And the reason I talk about optics is it is not lost on a sentencing judge or ultimately uh, the board of parole if Mr. Manassian, let's just say for argument's sake, he were to receive one 25-year sentence globally for all 10 murders. And so he's got a life sentence. He is ineligible for parole for 25 years. It is not lost on the parole board or anybody that he is a danger to society and his chances of receiving parole are zero. So he would never get out and see daylight. It's a life sentence. And even if he gets a parole hearing at 25 years, there's absolutely nothing, nothing he could do in the system that would reduce his reduce his risk or his culpability in this case to justify parole. That's why I say optics, um, because it is viscerally satisfying to see somebody receive a hundred year sentence or something of that nature. I totally understand that because of the tragedy here. And what happened, it's, it's enormous and the pain for the families is enormous and, and, you know, we can't imagine that. That said, 
he will never see daylight, whether it is one life sentence or 10. So we wait and see. Which way do you think it's going to go? You know, it, it's uh, I, I, I'm not sure because there is legitimacy to the sentencing for uh, consecutive sentences when you have particularly mass casualty events. These are rare in Canada um, and they are, are, you know, born out of a certain type of hatred or evil. And I think they do call for enhanced sentencing. So I think it, there are legitimate arguments on both sides. I, it's it's a tough one for me to call. I mean, I, I lean on the side that it's better to have the system we had in place prior to the amendments where somebody gets a life sentence and it's 25 years. And in cases like this, we know they're never going to get out. But I understand why in mass casualty events or events where you have multiple uh, homicides with somebody where there's a particular degree of evil, you get you get multiple sentences. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm on the fence. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm on the fence on this one. That's okay. I, it's it's complicated and it's complex and it's it, it and involves. It's I mean, yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Even though you're logical, it, it involves emotion. Um, this is interesting. You mentioned plea bargain, and we were talking about a Ghislaine Maxwell in the case of Ghislaine Maxwell, and I wondered why she hadn't um, made a plea bargain and started to turn over people's names of famous people that perhaps were wrapped up in the uh, sex uh, abuse um, of young minors that are famous people. Um, and then I saw this headline, and I wonder if that's going on here. U.S. offers to drop uh, Ghislaine Maxwell's perjury case if sex abuse conviction is allowed to stand. What is happening here? Yeah, so the U.S. is offering a carrot to say we'll drop the perjury charges that arise from a deposition in 2016 in a civil case where she said she didn't know about um, uh, Epstein's uh, actions. The, the, and and what they want is the prosecution would like to stop any type of argument to throw out the convictions to bring closure uh, to the victims. Totally understandable. The challenge, though, is these the sentences for perjury are you know, minor in comparison to the sentence she can receive uh, for her role in these uh, sex assault uh, cases. And so I don't think that's going to have much of an impact on the defense. Uh, we'll see what they say, but I, I don't think that's they're, they're going to take the prosecution up on that. Um, you know, behind the scenes, I think you and I discussed this. You know, is this an impetus to have uh, discussions behind the scenes mm-hmm. for her to cooperate more now? with respect to other participants and that could then that cooperation could be taken into consideration to reduce her sentence. So, you know, maybe there's more going on and, and, you know, you, you've got the spidey uh, tingle on it. Yeah. Okay, good. I thought I was way off base there, but uh, to me, it sounded uh, kind of weird and uh, convenient timing before she is uh, sentenced. Amanda Todd's mom has just recently won a fight to lift a publication ban on her daughter's name and story. Can you talk about how important this is for um, not only uh, victims, but their families? Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an archaic thing. So these mandatory publication bans on an individual who is under 18 years of age has a very important place when um, the, the victim is alive and um, is a participant in the proceedings. And by publishing their name, it may have a lasting impact in the future and perpetuate trauma. That said, if you have a tragedy where the victim has committed suicide in this case or or was murdered, the family um, may feel very much that 
the child is no longer, the victim is no longer a person because their name is not part of the proceedings and they're not able to say things about what happened in the case uh, because of the publication ban. So in that, in that sense, it has a uh, disproportionate impact on the family uh, of a victim and does not necessarily serve any real meaningful protection because sadly, you know, the victim is dead. So the, the mother in this case wants to go on and do very important work to alert everybody to cyberbullying cyber yeah. and other types of cyber crimes. And by being able to talk about her daughter, she's not going to be in breach of the law and she can bring her daughter's name to life and have you know, some meaningful purpose to what she's doing, which came out of that tragedy. Yeah. And I can't imagine, you know, when you cannot name your daughter, she has literally been erased from history. That's right. That's, you know, it, 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 and it's, that's something you don't want. So that's why the court found that it was unconstitutional. And I think that's a very solid decision because I don't think there ever should be a blanket. That's why I don't like blanket uh, type of laws. You know, there always has to be room to maneuver so that in cases where there is, uh, you know, just reasons to have a name published, they should be published. And uh, and I think part of that should be up to the family and the victim themselves. Joseph, it's always a good time having you on the show because you make sense of these headlines that <laughs> I think are difficult for a lot of average people to comprehend that don't have their mind. And uh, maybe they're watching a few murder shows on Netflix, but they do not <laughs> have their minds on what exactly is going on within the justice system on a daily basis. So thank you for explaining things. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I do my best. Stay warm, Kelly. Take care. (laughs) All right. Have a great day. Joseph Newberger, criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners, host of the Not On Record podcast.